Well, good morning, Mosaic. Guys doing all right? Good, good, good. I hope so, because man, do we have some stuff to jump into today. Uh, so much that is waiting for us to both discover and encounter as well as to experience. So we are in the book of Philippians. Uh, it is a letter that Paul has written to the church in Philippi in response to uh, the request that he has gained from Philippi as they asked him like, hey, Paul, how do we live out uh, this reality of the gospel that we've discovered in our everyday lives in a cultural context that is complex? complicated to say the least. And uh, how do we do that in a manner worthy of the gospel? And so Paul is responding to the church in Philippi with this letter. And in the first part of the letter, uh, Paul uh, really engaged in what I last week said was a a particular journey, a track, a highway, a road. Uh, And in this road, he covered mostly in a big picture three things. He said to the men, I love your heart. I love your desire to want to live your life in a gospel-worthy manner following Jesus. I sense your heart. I feel your partnership with me. I, I, I love you guys. You guys are awesome. And I, I'm thrilled to write to you about this. And then he said, okay, so let's get to it. Uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's not complicated. It's simple, though it's very difficult. Have your attitude be the same as the attitude of Jesus. I mean, just follow him. Do what he does. Live like he lived. Have your attitude be his attitude. And then he unpacked his attitude for us. And we're like, wow, beautiful. But you're sort of like, how? And then Paul was like, okay, so let's bring it a little closer to home. And he unpacked for them his desire to send Timothy soon for him to come after that and immediately to send Epaphroditus. And he basically said, look, if we're gonna do this, uh, we've, we've gotta do this together. And so in some ways, though we follow Jesus, we also have the privilege of saying, I follow you as you follow Christ, you follow me as I follow Christ, because then we can engage in what the scripture says is the stirring up or the spurring on toward love and good deeds that we do for each other by his spirit. So man, be in this together, follow one another as you follow Jesus. And then Paul was like, but just in case you think what I mean is to either follow each other or to be impressed by each other or to try to impress each other with your impressiveness, this ain't about you and about me. It is about Jesus. And so we rejoice in who and who alone? In Jesus, we rejoice in him alone. We find ourselves in him alone. And that was the beginning of what I said last week was the exit ramp off the highway we've been on onto a highway that is going to now unpack for the rest of the book of Philippians. And as I said last week, this particular highway we're about to get onto was my first very favorite passage of scripture and my first very favorite book that is now many favorite passages and many favorite books. But this passage in Philippians, as far as I have memory at least, was perhaps the first I really truly memorized and, and held on to and said, man, this is, this is what I wanna do. This is what I wanna be about. This is how I wanna live, is the passage we're about to enter into. So my first favorite, my first favorite and been waiting a long time to land here and jump into this passage. Part of the reason why this passage was my first favorite and remains one of my favorites is because it is by nature, like Paul often does, inspired by the Spirit, 
an extraordinary summary of giant things. So, you know, Paul has this way of sometimes taking these giant concepts that are scripture-wide, they Genesis to Revelation. You need the whole of scripture to understand the gospel, right? True, totally true. Except that Paul manages to summarize it all in uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse one through 10. And so you have the whole gospel, as I've often said, summarized in 10 verses. Here it is. And you're like, how do you do that? And this passage is one of those where Paul is taking massive scripture-wide reality and he's boiling it down into a single paragraph to say, you want me to summarize the entire thing? Here it is. This particular passage, I would say, is a summary of this. Whereas Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a summary of the intricacies of the gospel and our rescue through Jesus, this particular one, though the gospel is rich in it, and it is, again, a summary of the gospel, what it really is is this. Do you want to know, if you follow Jesus, what you ought to be striving after for the entirety of your life on this planet? Here it is in a paragraph. Like, do you want to know what you and I should be pouring all of our energy into striving after? This is it. Now, you might say, hold on, hold on, Renault. I mean, you've said before, the summaries in scripture of how we are to live are found in like Micah 6, 8, you know? I remember Micah when he said, do you, do you want to know what the Lord requires of you? Live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. There it is. Or for example, James 1, 27 where, you know, uh, James writes and he says, you want to know what God considers to be pure religion? Well, love the orphans, care for the orphans and the widows, and do not be polluted by the ways of the world, the philosophies of the world. So we're like, there, there it is. That's what we ought to be doing. Yes, yes, I, absolutely. But this particular passage includes that and gives us the giant summary of what we ought to pour all of our lives into. So here it is. You are about to walk with me into a short scripture that is going to give us essentially the entirety of what we ought to be striving for the rest of our lives. That should be pretty exciting. Or I'm going to be dead wrong and you'll be like, you're crazy, but I ain't crazy. And you'll see why. So there it is. That's why I'm so excited. By the way, before I turn there and we turn there together, just so you know, because it's Paul, the spirit of God uses Paul uniquely at times also to do something else. And you will see it in this passage. Paul will simultaneously in this summary of all things we ought to pour our lives into following Jesus to summarize the entire thing. He's also going to give us extraordinary theological depth. There is theological depth in this passage that unpacks the gospel in unbelievable ways that we will enter into and see. And yet, even though it is deeply theological, he does it in such a way that it doesn't sound theological. It sounds accessible and heartfelt and passionate. And he's like, do this. By the way, you just encountered massive theology. I mean, that's crazy cool. So let's not waste any more time. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians chapter three, and we are gonna be in verse seven. 
If you have your little note-taking books that we have had, grab those now because we're going to be jumping in. So uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Remember, Paul has just come out of that uh, uh, ramp that took us off the highway of follow each other as you follow Jesus. Look at Epaphroditus and his life, Timothy and his life, me and my life, and then follow us. And then he's like, but it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord alone and only and completely. And then he kind of said, do not under any circumstances buy into your own self-righteousness or the self-righteousness of others. Because self-righteousness, just like self-governance, is from the pit of hell. It's useless. It's dangerous. It's not safe. It is a self-reliance that eliminates Jesus and you don't want to live in it. And so if your righteousness is some version of self or your governance, lawlessness is some version of self, you are in grave danger. Don't do it. Make sure that all of your self and your righteousness and your trust and your governance is found in the person of Jesus. And so he's like, don't buy into that whole world of self-righteousness. So he's just dealt with that and he's just laid his resume on the table. Here's my resume of self-righteousness that I once held dear. And then he goes like this, verse seven, the transition where we ended last week. But whatever gain I had, I counted, past tense, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So that was the sort of the, the transition sentence moving into this new highway where he's like, man, here's my resume. It is full of self-righteousness, almost perfect self-righteousness. It was an amazing resume. It was my gain. It was my effort. And Jesus was invading that gain, the religious realities of Judaism. And he was the threat. And this was the gain. He was the loss. And this was the gain. And then he says this, but here's what I've discovered. I've discovered in my encountering Jesus that there is actually now an exchange that what I thought of as loss, Jesus invading Judaism, is in fact great gain. And so I have now counted what I once thought as gain, my resume, my self-righteousness, as great loss. And I have made the exchange. And that's where we ended last week. And now he says... What do I mean by that? Like, what, what, is the, what does that mean that I made the exchange? And he actually uses a word to suggest, not just suggest, but to state that he's not done just making it a sentence. He goes, indeed, indeed, verse eight. What indeed means is I've just said something, but there's more. You with me? We don't like just start sentences with indeed. Indeed, how are you? Right? When we say indeed, we're like, I just said something and there's more. It's not a therefore. It's not a because of, it's just a wait, not done. Wait, not done. Indeed, indeed, there's more. So what is the indeed? Let's go take a look. Indeed, I count. Look at the, look at the change here. The first sentence was, I counted it all a loss, past tense. But now it's like, indeed, actually, it's more, it's more. I didn't just count in the past what I had as my resume as lost, as, as loss. I now count currently present tense, what as loss? Everything. Everything 
as loss. So now he moves. He had a context. Here's my self-righteousness, my resume. And when I encountered Jesus, I realized he is incredible. I want him, not my resume. So I counted my resume as loss compared to Jesus. But there's more. I'm actually now, as I continue to encounter Jesus, not just counting my resume as loss, but I currently count and continue to count what as loss? Everything. Paul just moved from a self-righteous resume to his possessions, his relationships, his circumstances, his life. His, he just put everything on the table. He's like, actually, it's bigger than that. Everything, everything is a loss. Everything. And then he says this, because I count everything a loss because. Now there's a because word. In scripture, how many of the words are intentionally placed there by God? All of them. There is no word in scripture that is accidental. Or God was like, at an end, why not? Throw in a because. Who will notice? Every word matters. So when we get to a word and we're like, because of something, we need to pause and say, because of what? If he's now counting everything a loss, what is this reason that he is counting everything a loss? What causes him to count everything a loss? And he says, okay, let's take a look. Because, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So here it is, here it is. He's now, he's now made the full declaration of the exchange. One, he said, it's not just an exchange of my resume for him. It is an exchange of my everything for him. And the reason everything that I once had, the good, the bad, the ugly, the wonderful, the terrible, the suffering, the celebration, the good gifts, the, the, the difficult things, like he lumped it all in. So he's now actually saying, pay attention now, not just do I exchange the suffering stuff, the bad stuff, my self-righteousness as lost compared to Christ, every good gift I have, every wonderful thing, even the things he's given me, when I look at them in light of this other thing, then they are nothing to me. So are they in of themselves nothing? Is that what Paul's saying? No, he's saying in a category, there might be some good things. A relationship I have, a circumstance I have, a, a resource I have. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. But there is a category when I put it in that I go, oh, there it is. There it is. It's nothing now. And what is that category? When I compare it to something else, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. If ever knowing Christ is standing next to having anything else, knowing anything else, being anything else, uh, uh, sitting in anything else, then this is immediately, if it stands as a distraction or opposition to this, this is immediately total loss. Do you see what I'm saying? Might be fine until it is compared to or stands next to or distracts from knowing Jesus. Then there is only one thing that stands and stands alone as surpassingly worthwhile. And it is not my stuff. And it is not my circumstances. And it is not my resume. And it, is not, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so Paul says, there I stand. There I stand. I have now counted how much a loss? Everything because of Jesus and what specifically about Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing him. And so we all sit here and we're like, mm, amen, brother. Surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I agree wholeheartedly. What is that? Like, why is it so worthwhile to know Jesus? What is this surpassing? With? Oh, I know it's, it's, it's surpassing and worthwhile. 
yeah, but you wake up every morning like me and struggle with all the stuff that you think matters more than Jesus. So if we're so convinced that Jesus is so awesome and worthwhile, then we wouldn't be sitting here struggling with the thousand things we hold on to instead of Jesus. So there must be for us, for me, still a, well, what, is, what, what makes Jesus so worthwhile? Like, why is he surpassingly worthwhile? Well, the good news is, guess what? Paul's gonna tell us. That's right. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not just saying that so you can all amen and then walk out confused. I'm actually gonna tell you what I mean as far as why he is worthwhile. And so he says this, uh, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then before he tells us what makes him so worthwhile, he adds a sentence here. He says, FYI, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Okay, so this is an important sentence because here's what Paul's doing. Have you ever talked to those people in your life where they're big talkers about what they're willing to do? You know what I'm saying? Oh, if given the opportunity, I'd do X, Y, and Z. If I'm ever in that situation, I'll definitely do this and that. Oh, I'd be willing to sell all my possessions and go off to the mission field. Excellent. Have you ever? Oh, well, no, I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. But if I ever got the opportunity, I'd do it in a second. See, when we talk about things we're willing to do, it's uh, talk. Maybe you are willing to do it. Maybe you're not. When push comes to shove and you show up there, maybe you will do it. Maybe you won't, but I don't know because you just telling me that you're willing means nothing. It means nothing because I don't know if it's true. But if you bump into somebody and they say, you know, I'd be willing to lose everything for this or I'd be willing to sell everything for that. And you say, really, how do you know? And you're like, well, I did actually. <laughs> when I was uh, 27, I sold all my possessions, moved to the mission field and lived there for 25 years. Oh, do you know that they're willing to do it? Yes, so are they talking hypothetically? No, they're talking reality. And this is Paul right now. He's like, just in case you all think I'm saying, I count all things a loss, everything that I have for the sake of Christ. I'm not saying that hypothetically. I'm not saying that as a maybe. I'm not saying to you, well, if ever I had to, I would. He's saying, FYI, I already suffered the loss of how many things? All of them. Let's, let's calculate that for a second. Is he just like, you know, ah, I lost all things. Not really, Paul. You're, you're fine. So how long has Paul been in prison now? Years and years and years. Why is he in prison? Because he preached the gospel in Jerusalem and the Jews wanted to stone him. And the Romans, to protect him from the Jews, thought it was a good idea to lock him up and then totally forgot why they locked him up and then moved him from city to city for years until he's in Rome where he's going to stand trial before Caesar that if he is convicted, he'll lose his life, which he does, we know later on, and he will actually die. And what does he have left as far as possessions? Zip, zero. How about his resume? His resume doesn't matter anymore because the Jewish people don't buy into his resume. They think he's their enemy. The Christians aren't sure about him still in many ways. So his resume means nothing. His career means nothing. His pursuits mean nothing. He has no stuff left. He's in prison and he's waiting for trial where he's going to die. Has he lost everything? Everything that was ever dear to him? He's like, I'm sitting here and it's all gone. And he says this, and, and I lost it for the sake of Christ, meaning the reason I lost it isn't just because I was foolish with my money or I was foolish with this. I chose to stand and I chose to preach Christ. And because of that, I lost everything. So it was for his sake. And then he uses this beautiful word. I lost it in this way. I suffered loss. So he's also saying, I didn't just 
voluntarily give it up. I've done that with some things, but some of them I just lost involuntarily. In other words, they were pride from me because I'm following Jesus. So listen now, and it's going to scare you a bit because you're saying, are you saying, Renaud, that this isn't just about me saying to God, here are the things I'm willing to give up right now, but it's actually me saying to God, anything I'm unwilling to give up, pry it from my fingers, take it from me, draw it out, remove it, so that if I have to say I have suffered the loss of that thing because he took it from me, that that's still a perfectly giant gain because it gains me more of Christ. Yep, that's what I'm saying. Like, really? Well, I'm not saying it. Paul's saying it. And Paul's not saying it. The Spirit of God's telling Paul to say it. So if you have a problem, have a conversation with God. But what Paul is saying is, I didn't just voluntarily lose some of this. I have suffered the loss of how many things? All things. So here I sit with nothing. And here's what Paul's saying. Uh, Pay close attention now. Because this is not just Paul's way of saying, FYI, I've lost all things, so I have credibility. But he's also able to say something else to us that's very important. When we as humans imagine what it will be like to have something or not have something, all we have is our imagination, right? But when you bump into somebody that's already not had or had that thing, they are not imagining what it's like. They know what it's like. And what Paul's saying to us and to the Philippians is, I have lost all things. And now that I've lost all things, I haven't changed my conclusion that Jesus is still more than I imagined. He's saying, actually, in losing everything, I'm more convinced of my statement that I want to know Jesus and Jesus alone. So he's saying, when you've lost everything, that is scary in terms of losing possession of it. You will, like me, find that Jesus is more than you thought he would be in the losing of all things because he is more and the surpassing wonder and worth, worthiness of knowing him is more than all that I had before. And now, as though Paul is going, I feel like you guys aren't getting the magnitude of this exchange, the, the gap between this exchange, that, that, that this is not like a fast food versus steak. Do you know what I'm saying? Both decent, which one are you gonna pick? Jesus the steak or a little Mickey D's? You know what I'm saying? Uh, this, that ain't it. So, so Paul's like, no, no, I, how, how, do I, how do I make this dramatic? And then he gets all dramatic on us. Yeah, here it goes, here it goes. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish, trash. Now, you know, we live in America and uh, our trash has a different category than trash once had in Jesus's time. You know, we have little boxes. We put it in with little plastic bags, the little ties, and then we have smelly things we plug into the boxes. And so when we look at our trash, we don't get nauseated. We're like, I mean, you don't want to touch it. I get it. But even our trash is so clean, we can practically eat it. And you're like, what? No, please. But you know what I'm saying? When you think of trash, you're like, yeah, it's it's in the trash. It's not terrible. And so if Paul was saying here in his original writings in the original language, hey, everything I counted is kind of like trash, we'd still say not the kind of trash we're dealing with, the kind of trash he's dealing with, which in his context, when you talked about trash, it was a mixture of nauseating things and smelled terrible. And so you're like, oh, so you're saying all this stuff is kind of like trash when compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, except that that's not what Paul said. See, the King James Version actually got this one right in a unique way because it's translated in the King James Version not as trash, but as dung. 
dung. It, it literally, go read it. It says, I count all things dung in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. And the word dung there is the effort of the King James uh, to, to be nice. You know what I'm saying? Because the actual original word here is translated into human or animal excrement or poop. Like poop. And you're like, hold on, hold on, time out, time out. Like is Paul's intent here to say it's like a pile of poop? And I'm like, no, 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 that's not, that's not his plan. That's not what he wrote. He's in the church and they're reading it in Philippi and he's like, look, let me get the point across. When you compare anything you have to Jesus, it's like a, it's like a pile of crap. And you're like, you did not, you said it. I'm like, no, I haven't said it yet. That was actually being nice, what I just did. And you're like, that was more than my children can handle. Yeah, I understand. Paul's trying to make a point and I haven't even made it yet. And you're like, are you going to say it? I'm like, I'm not going to say it. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think I could handle it. Paul's point is to get us here, to kind of get us into that space where he's like, can I just make a quick comparison? Here are your options. When you really understand the magnitude of what it means to know Jesus, what it means to have Jesus, then when you look at everything else, what you should be staring at is a pile of dung. <laughs> you should, and, and this is how you should think about it. Here's your options, folks. Listen, feel free. Pick you the one, that's your freedom. You can come to Jesus, be found in him, have life, light, and freedom, follow him. Or you can run over to the pile, jump in it and go, this is so fun, and pick it up and squish it around and go, look at my pile of awesomeness. What Paul's trying to say is, is that how you want to roll? Because when I woke up after encountering Jesus and woke up to what it means to be in Jesus, I suddenly realized that I was a guy standing in a pile and squishing it around and thinking it was fun. And I, I just, I'm just not sure that's how I want to roll anymore. I feel like I kind of want to go over here. So what Paul's trying to say is, I'm trying to make a point, follow him. Now what Paul's going to do is, okay, okay, so what does it mean that I'm not knee deep in the pile thinking it's awesome and squishy and fun? What does it mean that I'm actually here and that Jesus is in fact a surpassing worthiness? And then he goes into that. Now we're gonna get theological without realizing we're getting theological. And it is the combination of beautiful theology and heartfelt passion combined in an accessible way as Jesus often does in his word through those who are writing. Watch what he says. I consider all things and count them a pile of stuff that I can't mention in church in order that I may gain Christ. So this is an exchange. I lose the pile to gain Jesus. And then he says this, but it's not just gaining Jesus. He's about to say something that's extraordinary. When I, when I, when I say gain Jesus, what do I mean? Do I mean like Jesus rolls in as my co-pilot? That's one of my favorite, not favorite things. Jesus is my co-pilot. I'm like, you a three-year-old with a plastic steering wheel with a little honky horn on it, and Jesus is flying the plane going, how's the flight going? And you're like, I got it! I love having you as my co-pilot, it's so awesome! So if you have the bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot, I'm just saying, you may want to get a marker, because Jesus ain't no co-pilot. He's never been your co-pilot. He will never be your co-pilot. He is not an add to your life. He is not a side note. He doesn't show up and you're like, I got rid of the pile of, uh, you know, and I got Jesus on my other arm and we're rolling through life together. 
Paul's like, that's not what I mean when I say gain Jesus. So I, I, should probably, I should probably unpack for you what I mean when I say gain Jesus, because it's not the co-pilot thing. What I mean by gain Jesus is that I'm found in him. So I, I didn't say that. It's, it's written next. Look, he, he says it oh, upside down. There we go. He says it. That in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So what, what Paul is saying is this exchange from where I was thinking that the pile of stuff was fun, but it's actually dung. I'm now found in him and in this finding myself in him. This is what it means that I have gained Christ. And let me explain to you then what I mean by found in him. What I mean by found in him, Paul says, is that I now no longer have a righteousness of my own, but I have his righteousness over me and I stand in him under his righteousness. Look, uh, he says it again. I, I'm just kind of repeating because I know ahead of time what it says. Look at what it says. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul is saying is, you know that righteousness I talked about right before we got on this highway on the exit ramp, the self-righteousness, my resume? Here's what I discovered about that self-righteousness, that that is my righteousness. And do you know what that righteousness fits into? You know which pile it is a part of? The dung pile. It's part of the squishy stuff. It's part of the brown. It smells bad. And I was like, it's so fun. And he's like, when I discovered Jesus and his righteousness and took another look at mine, the fun went away quick. And I'm like, what is this? Ah!" And you're like, it's not chocolate. It's not chocolate. (laughs) But I'm found in Christ now. And his righteousness, his righteousness covers me. So what Paul is talking about here in theological terms is justification. In the theological track, we say the first part of our being saved is that we are justified. We are made not guilty or declared not guilty, not because we are not guilty, but because the righteousness given to us as a gift is not our own righteousness that remains to leave us in guilt. It is his righteousness. And Paul says, when you are found in his righteousness, you realize real fast that the surpassing worth of knowing Christ makes that stuff a pile. And then you really come awake. This is the word picture I want to give you. I'm going to give it to you because it's important. Okay. When you really start coming awake to what it means to have Christ's righteousness and be justified because of him, in him, not because of your own righteousness, you not only discover that the pile is a pile, but you discover that before you found Jesus, you weren't just like a person playing in the pile, you were a corpse playing in the pile, like a rotting corpse. You're like, what? Yeah, so picture it with me. Big pile of, you know, that which we cannot speak in church, within the pile, a rotting corpse, flesh kind of rotting off, dying slowly, and you're like, (laughs) it's so good. And what Paul's trying to say is, there's where you were. There's that stuff. I found Jesus. He invited me over to him. I found myself in him. I got his righteousness. The corpse became a living, beautiful thing because he made me alive. And I'm looking back at that and going, what was I thinking? That's what Paul's trying to say. And he's not even done yet. 
He's just at justification. He's just at that. No, 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 no. Yes, we could stop here and you'd all be done. He's worth more than anything I imagined. But Paul's like, no, 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 no. Not done yet, not done yet. Theological step number one, there's three more to come. So he's like, not only am I found in him with his righteousness alive instead of dead with him and his inheritance in eternity instead of my pile. So I'm, I'm kind of over that, but there's more. What I now want, now that I'm here, is I want to have my ongoing life look different, wouldn't you? If I'm found in Jesus, do you think the big conclusion for all of us should be this? Now that you have saved me and given me your righteousness so I don't need my own righteousness, I'm gonna go play in my pile. Like that's what, that's what stupidity is. That's what lawlessness is. That's what arrogance is as followers of Jesus. Now that I have his righteousness, I don't need to, to do anything righteous because I'm not a dead corpse anymore. So now the only exchange is same pile, just not a dead corpse playing in it, but a, a, but a living person. And it's almost more stupid. And so what Paul says is now what I want is something more. Now that I've discovered this righteousness found in him, the surpassing greatness, I want my life to be something different. And here's what I want. I want more of what? Of him. I want more of him. I found him to be more than I imagined. And now I want more of what I found to be more. And so here's what Paul says. This is how I wanted to roll from now on. Not only am I found in him and that's surpassing beyond words, but now I want this verse 10. I have a righteousness that is from God that depends on faith. All he means by depends on faith there, FYI, quick side note, is not that it depends on me. It's that this is not a righteousness I work for. This is a righteousness I thank God for. I say, thank you. It's by faith. Thank you. I'll take it. There's the, this one comes by faith, by simply believing and knowing who Jesus is instead of doing anything. So this righteousness is not mine and it doesn't come by any work of mine. It comes by me simply trusting him, right? And then he says this, now, this is what I wanna do. Here we go. I want more, that I may know him, verse 10. So there he is again, a little repetitive, don't you think? Paul's like, I wanna know Jesus. I wanna know Jesus. I wanna only know Jesus. I definitely wanna know him. I totally wanna know him. He's the one I wanna know. I wanna know Jesus. And he says that over and over again, just in case any of you or I think that what he means is I want to have power or I want to suffer for him because it comes back to work. I wanna, I wanna have more power of Jesus. I wanna suffer more for him to show him how awesome I am. It's like all belongs in the pile, all part of the pile unless it is actually about him, then the same things that can be part of the pile when they are about me actually can be beautiful when they are about him. So he's gonna keep saying this, what I want to know is who? Jesus, now he's gonna add what that means. He's not gonna say, I want his power. He's gonna say, I want him, and here's part of him that I can gain. Take a look at this. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And you're like, ooh, that sounds fun. Oh, it is, it is, but it's not quite what you think. You're like, oh, does that mean like anytime I need something like oh, the power of the resurrection? The power of God's resurrection in this context as Paul is unpacking it is now the second theological piece. The first is justification where we are made righteous because of him and his grace and his righteousness by faith. It's a, it's a gracious act of his part. The second piece of theological clarity is that now that we are righteous, though we are still here and there are unredeemed parts of us, God is at work by his spirit, 
what we call sanctifying us, sanctification. It is the process by which he is making us more like him and allowing us to participate with him empowered by the spirit. It is the journey toward our righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but a, but a closing of the gap between our unrighteous deeds and his righteousness that we now have. And it is not a requirement for salvation. It is a gift from salvation. Because we are saved, we get to become more like him. And the more we become like him, the more life, light, and freedom we realize and those around us realize. So here's what Paul's saying. What I want now is to know daily the power of your resurrection, the power that is at work in me, making me more like you. I want to know it. I want to experience it. And I want to participate in it. So whatever is in me that is not like you, may the power of your resurrection undo that. This is not like you roll around with lightning in your hands. It's actually you have a power that is transforming you from the ugly that is in you to the beauty that is waiting. The process of sanctification. And Paul's saying, that's how I want to live. I want to know you. I want to know your righteousness. I want to know your transformation, your sanctification, your changing me. And I want to participate in it. And then he's like, and, and actually, not only that, but I also want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So he's like, oh, not only do I now that I am found in him and he is surpassing in worthness and my pile is my pile. Not only do I now want to engage in a life that experiences the power of his transformation, sanctification, but I also want to live a life of mission. I want to suffer like he suffered for his sake and the sake of his kingdom. He's not talking about suffering for the sake of suffering. I want to suffer to show Jesus how awesome I am. He's like, no, when Jesus came to this planet, what did he come for? To save us. Just FYI, in case you're like, I'm not sure. He came to redeem us. He had no other reason to show up, but to show himself to us and redeem us. And to redeem us, he had, he had to give his life and his death and then his resurrection. He suffered greatly for our redemption. And then what does he tell us? Go into how much of the world? All of the world and find the unredeemed spaces, the unredeemed people and share the gospel with them and, 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 and affect on them the things I would affect on them if I showed up. Uh, care for them, love them, be with them, bring life to them. And you know what it's gonna cost you? A lot, maybe everything. You're gonna suffer if you're going to follow Jesus on this planet. And so here's what Paul's saying. Man, if I got to choose between my, my comfort and, and following you and therefore suffering, what do I want to share in? I want to share in the mission. I want to share in the mission. So now that I know who you are and I'm found in you, I want to be transformed however hard that may be. And I want to live my life on mission for you, however hard that may be. And then he says this. <clears throat> that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is now the final piece of theology, which is glorification. There's justification. I'm made righteous by him. There's sanctification. I'm progressively made more like him, transformed. And then there is glorification. And because I was made righteous by him, I now have eternal life because of him. And so Paul says this, I want to know who? Jesus. In what ways? Every way. At the abandonment of what? Everything. So that no matter the means that I would have eternal life, it would always come back to who? Jesus. So what he's not saying is, so that no matter what it takes, I can have eternal life, because that would defy Paul 
in other parts of scripture. So Paul would be defying himself. Just kidding about the Jesus only. It's other stuff. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I want to know how much of Jesus? All of him. So that I know all of Jesus. So that by any means of knowing Jesus, I still come to eternity with who? Jesus. Because who is my eternal life? Jesus. Paul's coming to us here saying, in summary, you want to know what it means to live this life? Just want more of Jesus and less of everything else. And anytime you find anything else taking precedent over in your heart or soul, uh, you, you feel possessiveness of it. Please, please don't take this. Or, oh, why this? Why am I going through this? All hard things. Anytime that happens, what we ought to go is, hold on, hold on, time out. What are we playing in? A pile of, you do what you have to do in your car. We're playing in a pile of dung. That's what we're doing. And it is beautiful when the things God gives us, the gifts he gives us, are a means to know him more. Then it's not a pile of dung. Then it's beautiful. But when it is things we hold on to more than him, then where does it belong? In the pile of dung. And so he's like, man, spend the rest of your life wanting to know Jesus more, wanting to be captivated by who he is and walking with him and participating with him in sanctification on mission until the day comes where you will leave this planet and have the full expression and experience of all that he is. Jesus is all I want, Paul says. And he will tell us next week, not that I've already attained this, but this is what I strive for every day. That's why I started this sermon by telling you this is a summary of what we ought to spend the rest of our life striving after. Jesus and all of him. Whatever you possess, possesses you. Let me say that again. Whatever you own, whatever you possess, what, what you possess, what you think is yours, actually owns you. You don't own it. It's a, it might be a person. It might be a thing. It might be a, a dream, a hope, a circumstance, uh, uh, whatever. Whatever you possess, possesses you. So our goal in life should be to possess only one thing, Jesus, so that the only thing that possesses us is Jesus. And when you find other things that hold your affections beyond what is Jesus, ask him to pry it from your fingers. Because what Paul says is, whatever you hold on to that isn't him is a danger to you. And it keeps you from the beauty of being found in the wonder of his transformation. And it keeps you knee deep in a pile. You're not dead now. Good news. You still belong to him. But man, you know what I'm saying? It's squishy. So, perhaps we dare now to come to God and not just say, thank you for the things I have lost that held me from you. But maybe by faith we start saying this. God, whatever it is that I don't even know holds me from you. Would you do me the glorious favor? of prying it from me, either right now or over time in your graciousness. But this I know, this I know, for the rest of my life, I want only one thing, and that is more of you. This is our life, our safety, our joy. And hence Paul saying, rejoice only in the Lord. Pray with me. God, thank you for your love for us your grace toward us. 
Thank you for letting Paul write this extraordinary passage and make such clear, uh, beautiful contrast between that which we hold on to as ours and dear to us instead of you and how very much you are very much more than that. So help us, God, to continue to press in to that space that Paul so articulately and beautifully unpacked for us. To want to know you and you alone, more of you and more of you alone, less of everything else, less of everyone else and more of you. May we enjoy the relationships we have and enjoy the circumstances you give us and enjoy the good gifts that come from you. And may they always compel us to know you more. May we never find ourselves needing them more than we need you. Because God, as you so beautifully put it, anytime something matters more to us than you, then it has immediately been compared and then it is immediately in the pile. So God, graciously, lovingly, quietly, walk us out of this pile and into you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.